Today's episode is made possible with support from the law firm of Best and Flanagan, a team dedicated to building uniquely close relationships with all clients, including individuals, businesses, nonprofits, and generations of family members seeking legal advice. Online at bestlaw.com. Best and Flanagan, lawyers you know. And I would like to say this. So we talked about how Paul eats lunch at the same time and eats the same thing every day. So I'm preparing for a Kickstarter launch party where we invite the people who are in our video, our friends and family who just have supported us. And so I'm, I, I head out to go get the groceries for this party we were having later that day. I come back and it's like two o'clock in the afternoon. Paul has not left the table. He has not stopped replying to people. He has not had lunch. And I thought, oh boy, this is, this is, that was the turn of all, this whole story turns at that moment when I came back and said, Paul did not have lunch yet. From Twin Cities Business, this is By All Means, a show about innovation, drive, and purpose, and the leaders who make business work in Minnesota. I'm Allison Kaplan, your host and editor-in-chief of Twin Cities Business Magazine. We're coming to you from the studios of our presenting sponsor, the University of St. Thomas's Opus College of Business, serving more than 3,000 students enrolled in its undergraduate and graduate business programs. The college develops effective, principled business leaders who think globally and act ethically. And now, by all means. Paul Boswell is a chemist and a professor turned inventor. He created the educational game Turing Tumble. Named for Alan Turing, the father of modern computer science, Turing Tumble is basically a marble run that teaches people how to build computers, something no other game was doing at the time. Teachers and science nerds love it. Kids will even put down the screens to play with it. Paul's wife, Alyssa, is the CEO of their Twin Cities-based toy company, and in four years, they've grown revenue to $4.5 million annually. But this isn't just a story about inventing a game or building a nice little company. This is a story about how two educators with no ambition to become entrepreneurs successfully created and launched a product on their own. No angel investors, no big branding agency, no retail partner, just a homemade video to tell their story and a Kickstarter campaign to shore up enough money for the initial manufacturing run. They needed $40,000. They raised $400,000. Here's how it happened. As a professor, I found that most of the students didn't know much about programming. And it's useful in such a wide range of things, not just in computer science, but just about every other field. And actually, a lot of the research they, was, they were doing was held up because they didn't know how to program. Hmm. At the same time, um, there were games that were coming out that were supposed to teach kids programming. And I saw them and I thought, I can do better than this. Like, <laughs> we've got to have something that teaches how to program where... The, the thing runs itself, basically. So, like, there's these games where you can put down a set of instructions with cards, and then a parent or the kid runs through each one and does the instructions. But there's so many places where they can mess up. It's not very satisfying. So I thought, okay, this thing needs to run itself. So you program it, and you run it, and it just runs through, and you can tell if you did it right. So I started looking at mechanical computers, seeing how you could make something that runs itself. and um, uh, I found this old um, toy from the 1960s called the Digicomp 2. And it has these little balls that fall through, and you can program it, and you can kind of make it do certain things. But it's more like a calculator, not like a computer. Um, there's a lot that it can't do. So I started thinking how you could make that into something that could do anything a computer could do. And um, eventually came up with these extra parts you could put on and, and made a whole board and designed everything. Um, and then started thinking about how it could be like a product, like something that kids could play with and learn how computers work. And um, let me let me stop you right there yeah. and just ask when when you were first putting this together, it was with the expectation that you were going to use this in the classroom. I mean, you were doing it for your students. Yeah, you know, it wasn't that far along. So, like for the students, they would need more direct. Here's how you program in this particular language. This was more just to teach how how programming works, how computers work at a fundamental level. Okay. I think most people see a computer and they don't really have the foggiest idea what's going on inside. Right. You hear there's transistors, there's switches inside computers. 
there's billions of switches inside computers, but how do switches do anything smart, right? Mm-hmm. Like they just turn lights on and off. So that's the cool part about this is you go from switches to making things that actually do stuff you would never expect switches could do. Yeah. So um, how did you learn all of this growing up? Were you interested in computers as a yeah. kid? Yeah. Uh, my dad. Was I didn't a, want to make assumptions, yeah. <laughs> Paul, but I had a feeling. Yeah. My dad was a programmer. <laughs> we always had computers at home growing up. Uh-huh. And um, I learned how to program when I was little so I could make games. And then I made these games for graphing calculators and I'd give them to the kids at school and, um, you know, play during math class and stuff. Um, Alyssa, did you were similar? <laughs> um, no, I was really happy to get a graphing calculator because then we could type notes to each other. <laughs> that is the fact of it. Make it say words. Uh-huh. <laughs> I was very excited because before you're only lifted, limited to spelling out hello, you know. I yes. Just, but anyway, yeah. that was what I did with calculators. Yeah, that's right. So, okay, so so you're starting to think about this and put it together. Are you doing this like in your office? Are you doing it at home on the weekends? Alyssa, are you thinking what the heck is he up to? Yeah, so this is the thing. I just want to put in a couple of details on this. Mm-hmm. So uh, Paul really w- did have kids in mind with Turing Tumble, though it is 100% super interesting to adults. And he did make it so that the puzzle book even really is geared to adults. But during this time when they were coming out with all these programming toys for kids, we were buying all of them and trying all the things with our children. Mm-hmm. And we were trying all the toys. All of them. And Paul would find out something new and he would he would search out new stuff and he'd try it with the kids and see what it taught him. Were you trying it with the kids because you wanted your kids to learn about computers or because you were, you had a business idea in mind? Um, definitely so they could learn about computers. Once I started thinking about this, then uh, I started thinking along the lines of, OK, this there's there's a place for this. Mm-hmm. There's and, a need for it. <laughs> and and that was because what Every, nobody was quite as smart as you are. Be honest. Like what for were you, what were for you, why what nobody did, else came yeah, up with this? What was missing in the marketplace that you spotted? <sighs> okay, so there's there's a big problem with educational toys right now. There are an awful lot of them, a lot of them, and mm-hmm. they keep coming out with more, especially ones that teach how you know how to program or things like that. But the thing is that they're all made by people who don't have any background in it. Mm. So what they often do is they copy each other. So, you know, one company will come out with something and another one will come out with something just like it. And they're often just small changes from one to the next. Usually these people are like industrial designers. And so they're, they're doing what they see and they know how to do. Um, so coming at it from a different angle really helped. Coming at it from more of a, a scientific background, um, that really helps a lot. Okay. Um, but the reason why they're coming out with toys that are like that is the whole, um, well, there's a couple of reasons. Number one, it's the development period. So every other company out there that sells educational yeah. toys, sells any toys, they have to put out a new toy at a regular cadence. Mm. So they cannot spend four years in development. That might be six months. I mean, sure. a lot of companies have from like when they come up with it, they say, we need a product that does this. They want that product to be in stock in six months, Mm -hmm. which is nuts. Like you can't do anything innovative in six months. That gives you like one week to sit and think. (laughs) So so it it, it makes it really hard. So not only do they come from a background that doesn't cater to it, but they can't take the time to to try and come up with something that's truly different. So you're noticing this is missing. Mm -hmm. You've got the expertise Um, at what point did you start thinking all of your, you know, playing around and and trying things could actually be a a product? Yeah. Not until it was a product. How how long did that take? How long was the incubation period? (laughs) So there were so many unknowns when this whole thing started. Um, So I started working on it, but I had no idea how to get it to market. I had no idea how to mass produce anything. Did you know you wanted to? Yeah, I was kind of thinking along those lines. It seemed like, you know, as I was designing parts, I was designing them, thinking about, okay, could this be made into an injection molded part? Mm. Uh, And then I would modify it to make it so it could be. But I had to learn how to make injection moldable parts. And, you know, I'd never worked with a company that makes injection molds. And I'd never, and so say we could even get to a product that a a factory could make for us, then like, how do we get it out to people? How Mm -hmm. do we tell people about it? And, and, 
you know, we'd never priced anything or anything like that. And then, and even more fundamentally than all of that, were you confident that kids would want to play with it? I mean, like we tried it with our kids. Yeah. And they liked it. Yeah. <laughs> but it's really hard to know. I mean, and we didn't know what the market could bear. And that's the thing that's been really fun that we can say at this point is there are a lot of people who want a Turing tumble, mm-hmm. way more people than we even expected once we got it to the point where it was a polished product. Yeah. So that's what, been really fun. So, so Alyssa, as Paul was working on this and figuring out injection molding and figuring out how to do all this, what were you just, were you listening? Were you aware? Were you helping? What was your role? Yeah, I didn't, I feel like I don't, even know exactly how it all got from the beginning to the end. <laughs> you weren't very involved in that. When part was of it. the beginning? Do you have? Do yeah. you? Can you recall when Man. you really started? I remember he started taking things home, um, or he started showing me things like these little tiny itty bitty <laughs> versions of the Turing tumble parts, I and I just thought a lot of stuff, and I'd bring some things home, and yeah, and I just didn't have a clue of what it would be. I think once he started writing the puzzles, that was when I started to realize more of what this thing would be. Well, okay, so I think it actually, when, when you started getting involved is when we took it to, um, to some companies thinking we might license it. Oh, that's true. Yeah. So we, we talked to a few companies um, and, and showed it to them. And, 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 what, and what was it at that point? So I had a, I had a working prototype. I think I had a puzzle book at that and point, book, but yeah. it was, you know, the art was not great mm-hmm. <laughs> at that point. But, it, you know, it, just, it functioned. Um, and so we took it to some companies thinking maybe we would license it. And we, um, we were, they, they had like, everybody was interested. They, they wanted to license it, but we didn't realize like royalties are so small. Mm. You um, get like a dollar on each if sale. If that, I mean, it's, it's 5% of wholesale price. So mm-hmm. if they sell a lot, then it's a nice little sort of side income mm-hmm. thing. But they're making way, way, way more off of it than we ever would. So we, we, um, we had some offers for licensing, and we were like, ah, let's just try it ourselves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and at this point, had anyone played it other than your own kids? Uh, you had brought it to work. Yeah, so we were getting ready for doing a Kickstarter anyway at that point. We were kind of doing this licensing thing as like, uh, okay, this, this looks like it might be path, but if it doesn't work, we'll do this Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, we, we were getting ready for the Kickstarter. So we, we to make a video. So when we decided to do the Kickstarter, we bought a camera that could make the background blurry. And we, uh, that was really almost <laughs> the only qualification for this camera. <laughs> yeah, we went to the camera store and we're like, we're making a video and we want it to be good enough that you can have the foreground be sharp and the background be blurry. Uh-huh. And the guy's like, oh, well. Here you go. <laughs> How long ago was this? Was this before the iPhones were doing that? What, yeah, what, yeah, yeah, well before the iPhones. This was 2017. Okay, all yeah. right, all right. So, so you made a video, and and for those who haven't seen the game or experienced it, can you just explain? I mean, what what does it mm. look like? What it, is it? Explain how it works. Yeah, so it's a mechanical computer, literally. So it's a it's a flat board, um, and on the board there are these little pegs that stick out, a whole bunch of them. You put marbles along the top, and one marble falls at a time. And as it falls down the board, it runs through par- different parts that you put on the board, on those pegs. Some parts just make the balls go one way or the other. Some parts will actually flip like a switch, and other parts will actually turn other parts. So you can have one switch that flips another switch. Um, and one ball falls when it gets to the bottom. It automatically releases another ball from the top, and then it just keeps going until all the balls are through. And as it goes through, the switches flip and you can do, you know, you can do real basic things like just have it, have it make a pattern of balls like blue and red balls at the bottom. But then you can do more advanced things too. You can, with those switches, you can represent binary numbers. So you can make something that counts to eight and stops itself. Or you can make, uh, you can put two numbers on the board in binary and you can have them add together. You can make a circuit or a, a, a little, um, computer that can multiply numbers together or divide numbers there's if it if the board was big enough it could do anything a computer could do but even at the size it is it can do an awful lot of stuff it's hmm. surprising and and all of that is in the workbook because i wouldn't have a clue how to do any of those things <laughs> yeah so you, there's a puzzle book that comes with it and there's 60 puzzles and you start off really simple the challenges are really basic 
And then as you go, you build these this knowledge of how to make a computer that can do this. And then you, 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 know, you build on that to make it do something else. And then you build on that to do something else. Um, and there's like a story that goes with it. So and that, how did you yeah. know uh, what age it would work for? Mm, that was mainly based off of the fact that you need to be able to read. Uh-huh. So other than that, uh- like we find it doesn't matter what age you are. It's surprising. You would think that adults would be so much better than kids. Mm-hmm. I'll bet if you looked at the, the how far adults could get in the book, if you took a random sampling of adults and you took a random sampling of kids, I'll bet they can get just as far, just as quickly. Interesting. Yeah. So you've been working on this. You've at, you're at the point of having a working prototype. Your own kids have given it a thumbs up. Um, you decide you're going to launch a Kickstarter, and you needed money, what, to actually manufacture them? Yeah, exactly. Um, so we filmed a bunch of other kids doing it, and we, <laughs> we thought, okay, so we need injection molds to make this happen. And the quotes that we had at the time put it at about $40,000 to make these injection molds. How did you get just the prototype ones done? Uh, so I just 3D printed everything. Okay. Um, and if it was too big to 3D print on my printer, then I'd pay for it to be printed someplace else. Like how much money would you say you'd put in uh, to get to the point of Yeah, prototypes? so our, our final prototype that was working was yeah. a $5,000 investment, which was a lot. Yeah. So yeah. Paul had some opportunities leading up to the Kickstarter um, to go out to New York and show it to Popular Mechanics mm. and, and go out to Cal- um, Colorado. And do some different interviews. And we actually had him fly there, even though we I felt like we didn't even have the money for that. But we had him fly to those locations. I wasn't going to just send the Because we're not going to send. Because you, you only had one. We had yeah. one working prototype, and it was wow. not going in the mail. So yeah. Paul flew to the different locations. Yeah, okay. it was very valuable to us. Yeah. So, all right, so you, you launch a Kickstarter. And what's the messaging around it? How I mean, because half of the thing with Kickstarter is just getting attention. What, what were you telling people? Yeah. So the idea was that this is something that does, it does something nothing else does. I mean, number one, it's a mechanical computer that you can have at your home. Nobody has a mechanical computer. You can't buy a mechanical computer. So that's pretty cool in and of itself, but that only appeals to people like me. <laughs> so the, the main thing was like, this is the only toy that teaches how computers work. It's the only one. There are no other, there's no other toys. And, and it's something that's everywhere. Mm -hmm. Everybody uses computers all day long. And yet nobody knows how they work at that basic level. Like, how do you go from switches to that? Right? Yeah. So this is what that teaches. And um, there's a broad market for that kind of thing. Like, it's such an important thing that everybody has as part of their lives to understand how it works is is valuable. How much did you want to raise? So 40,000 is what we shot for. And we thought about all of our friends and family how much could we possibly raise if everybody bought one? And we didn't get up to 40000 <laughs> Will that first Kickstarter get them there? Find out after a word from our sponsor. Today's episode is made possible with support from the law firm of Best & Flanagan. Understand, identify, manage, protect, and realize the value of your intellectual property and other business assets. Expect a customized approach from Best & Flanagan with legal advice carefully tailored to protect your interest within the context of your overall business strategy, goals, and vision. Best in Flanagan, a legal team dedicated to understanding where you want to go and helping you get there. Local advocacy and advice from lawyers you know. Online at bestlaw.com. A Kickstarter campaign is only as good as its story. Here's how Paul and Alyssa framed theirs up. You go there and you pay and you get it. You, you get the product at a discounted rate, but you're buying it before it's even been fully realized. So it's almost like you're, you're, yeah, you're getting a, a little bit of a discount, but you're sort of a part of things. So as we, as we developed, as we went through, you know, we'd give updates and we'd describe what, what we're doing and you kind of feel like you're a part mm-hmm. of it. So, all right, so you, you did the math, and it, what you weren't going to get far enough with just friends and family. What no. happened when you launched the Kickstarter? Well, so before that, we, uh, we contacted all kinds of journalists that we thought might be interested. Hundreds and hundreds. Not me. Was it? I don't remember getting a call. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. 
I don't think it was hundreds. We oh, I think just we, felt I think our way. spreadsheet had like at least three hundred and fifty. Yeah, wow. maybe. Okay. Yeah. We tried to we tried to focus only on the ones that we thought might be relevant, and because um, we were kind of going, we really thought this would too kind of more really thought th- um, thought about the tech market and the mm-hmm. science market, and that is where we really heavily were looking for journalists is is in that area. Okay. Yeah. So, like, what was your dream placement? Where did you want this to be written about? Well, so the. The best one that we got was TechCrunch. That's pretty good. Um, yeah, and we that was that was the best. I was I was really excited when John Biggs got back to me, and he <laughs> he wrote back, and he was like, "I don't know, is this like all the other ed tech crap that's out there?" Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Paul like, said no, and he wrote them this really <laughs> compelling email back. So so I wrote back, and then he's like, "Okay, sure, I'll write up a piece about so, it." So so you got some press. Yeah. yeah, that was one, and then Popular Mechanics and a few others that were pretty good. So then we we knew there was some press, but we had no idea what effect that. Did would you have. even have a website at this point? No, only Just the Kickstarter, the Kickstarter page. page. Okay. And then the other thing that Paul did um, was he um, did actually get uh, some posts on Reddit about it that really went high. He was number one on Reddit for a day, mm-hmm. which is That's, hard to yeah. do. <laughs> That's very talking hard to do. about the game or talking about yeah it showed some uh it was like a gif of the of the game running and some things it could do and stuff like that cool yeah. okay yeah. so did that result in people contributing to the Kickstarter yeah so we ended up we ended up at the end of the month we had four hundred thousand what. Um, yeah. yeah. So that was amazing. Way more than our $40,000 goal. Were you, I mean, and did it just kind of happen steadily or was it all at the end? I mean, how how did it go and how did you feel? Well, so the first morning we launched it and we talked to the journalists and we said, we're going to launch it this day. So you should probably put out your article this morning. So we hit the button to start the Kickstarter. And there were a few people like my parents who backed it right away. Mm-hmm. So we looked at the people who were backing it, and it started increasing in pace, increasing in pace, increasing in pace. And then we started seeing a whole lot of people we didn't know. Mm -hmm. And it increased in pace. And by the end of the first day, we'd raised the 40000 Wow. And I would like to say this. So prior to us being recorded, we talked about how Paul eats lunch at the same time and eats (laughs) the same thing every day. Mm -hmm. So I'm preparing for a Kickstarter launch party where we invite the people who are in our video, our friends and family who just have supported us. And so I'm, I, I head out to go get the groceries for this party we were having later that day. I come back and it's like two o'clock in the afternoon. Paul has not left the table. He has not stopped replying to people. He has not had lunch. Oh, my goodness. This and is I thought, serious. Oh, boy. This is, this is, that was the turn of all this whole story turns at that moment when I came back and said, Paul did not have lunch how, yet. How yeah, did that, that was... feel, you guys? And I mean, did, mm-hmm. did you ever anticipate the Kickstarter going that way? Never. No. We thought it would maybe. We had hopes it would go better than what we were planning. Mm-hmm. But it took it from being something that we were going to do as a side hustle to saying, we need to manufacture enough games for 4,700 people. They are all over the world. We need to ship them these games. And this, there are a lot of people interested. Yeah. So, so you had 4,000-some people who contributed $400,000 altogether. Yeah, and every person bought between, you know, one game and, you know, the most was classroom packs, which weren't that many people supported. But Think about four hundred dollars, where everybody's only contributing about sixty-five to seventy-five bucks. Yeah, that's a lot of people. That what do you think resonated? I mean, do you think it was just that your video had that blurry background? Like, what? What, what was it? <laughs> that was a big definitely. Part of it. Was it really yeah. the idea that people really want educational games? They saw the uniqueness. I mean, that's the thing that Paul can do that other inventors. I mean, other inventors are creating something that is is unique and can do something in a different way. But the idea of creating a mechanical computer that teaches how computers work through a series of puzzles in an engaging way that it just it really just captures people's not their well, I guess I would say captures their imagination, captures their passion for learning something new, their kids learning something new. It just isn't run of the mill mm-hmm. at all in any way. So after you got over the excitement and surprise of, of such a successful Kickstarter, then did you get at all nervous? Like, oh, my gosh, we really have to do this now. 
Yeah, when oh, Paul yeah. had to quit his job, that was a tough day. Yeah, and you knew I, that yeah. right away that he was going to well, have to. No, no, we tried without. I it. was still thinking it was going to be a side hustle because I, uh, I, I just didn't see how there could be that many more people outside the Kickstarter who'd still want to buy it. Mm. So I thought maybe the Kickstarter was the end. Hmm. So, um, so I went to the. I went to the HR person, I think, and I said, you know, I just need a, I need to take a, a month off to, uh, to focus on production. And, and you were working for a company at this point, or were you teaching? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, no, I was working for a company okay. at that point, yeah. And he was like, uh, no, no, um, you can't do it. You're going to have to quit if you want to do this. We can't have everybody going off and doing Kickstarters. Mm. So, <laughs> so, so I, I had to quit because I had to do it. I mean, I had to produce these games. I okay, that's just... a scary day. You've got three kids. Alyssa, were you, did you have a full-time job then? I was not working because I was trying to pivot. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. It's a lot of pivoting. It was. It was scary. It was scary. And then, I mean, just you think about the health insurance Mm and, you know, I went onto the Minsure marketplace and, you know, Mm. we had to, we had to, you know, basically we didn't have any state support because we had had the Kickstarter money come in and he had had a good job. And then you're thinking, but we don't know in six months where, you know, if we're going to have the money for these premiums. Mm And we have a mortgage. It wasn't, it wasn't a terrible risk because I I also felt like I could probably get my job back pretty easily. Mm -hmm. Because I did a good job, and even my boss was like, you know, just apply if you want to come back, hmm. right? So, and I figured I could get a job too. We kind of weighed yeah. the risk, but we also we didn't. I think part of it is it felt scary too because we thought if he quits his job and we go all in, we want this to work. Yeah. We don't want to. We don't want to say in six months, mm-hmm. oh, he's back at his other job. We were able to produce the four thousand five hundred games and they did, you know, leave the factory in there on their way, or maybe they're still stuck at the factory because it was more expensive than we expected. Um, but it felt like a real turning point because we were saying, okay, now we're actually all in on right. this. So what did you do with that four hundred thousand? Oh man. Oh man, it, it making something is so expensive. And, well, and shipping it. And shipping it is even more <laughs> expensive than making something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was a real scary moment, too. Um, so I really dove in, actually, when it was time to figure out how to ship everything to where it needed to go. Mm. And every time I talked to the shipping company we were going to use, it seemed like the price went up every single time. And then <laughs> we got the final dimensions of the board. And I learned about something called dimensional. Oh, of the box, because the board is a certain size. The final dimensions of a box, and there's this thing called dimensional shipping or dimensional weight. So what dimensional weight says is I don't care if it's six pounds. If it is 22 inches long, it puts it into a 12-pound weight category. Mm. And then we got that, that amount of the quote, and I thought, oh, boy, this is going to be pricey. But, but yeah. what about the, the making? I mean, did you know where you were going to take that prototype to get it made? Did you have manufacturing? Oh. We didn't even have that figured out before. We we had some quotes, but nothing. Um, we hadn't picked a factory yet to work with, so we figured that out after the Kickstarter. That was the first thing. And how much was it going to cost you to make each game? Uh, so it started. I think when we did the Kickstarter, we were assuming about like we were selling them for like sixty dollars. We assumed it'd be about thirty dollars, which is not a great margin. We eventually found we we got that significantly lower. We talked to several factories all over the place um but then there were also additional costs like you know we needed better art for the box Mm. and so we worked with a company to improve that and oh man there were so many just upfront costs that came here and there so did the money go fast it did it went pretty fast and did you but did did you how long did it take you to get those games the the orders that you had to fulfill from the kickstarter how long did it take to do that to get them actually in people's mm-hmm. hands, about a year. Okay. And just, yeah. were you getting any complaints or were they all patient and supportive? They're very patient and supportive, actually. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we went about six months and then we started taking pre-orders. So, um, so we weren't just going on the 400000 for the entire year. Um, so we, we started taking pre-orders and that was a big turning point for us, actually. Um, we had the Kickstarter, and I was kind of thinking, well, that maybe is the end. But um, I started just kind of dabbling in advertising a little bit, just uh, doing a little bit of Facebook advertising and trying some other stuff. And at first, it didn't work very well. But somebody else did some stuff. They tried a few things, and they were like, no, your stuff's great. You can advertise with that. So 
I tried a little bit more and it started working one night. And I remember that night very well because I paid, you know, like $5 a day for advertising or something like that. Like and that Facebook first night, advertising are we talking yeah, about? Okay. Yeah. And that first night we had something like two orders and I was like, whoa, whoa I paid $5 and got two orders. Awesome. And then I, you know, started the next day I got like seven orders or something. And I, I started putting more money towards it. And, we, it, you know, the, it just started increasing, increasing, increasing. And that was when we realized, okay, we actually do have a business mm-hmm. here because we can reach people now with advertising. Whereas before, all we could do is rely on the Kickstarter platform and journalists to write articles about it, which neither of those are sustainable. But advertising is something where we can keep going at it. And it's also got, and, and you're also getting feedback along the way that you're on yep. the right path, which is valuable. A lot of entrepreneurs don't have that yeah. until they, they get further along than this. Yeah. So did key. you, were you able to do, to fulfill all those orders within the money you had taken in? Did you have to put in money of your own at all? Boy, I don't know that we looked at that. I think we probably um, came close. It was It was close, especially because there were things like, uh, taxes in in um, the EU. We didn't understand exactly how VAT worked. You were um, shipping not just domestically. You were shipping. Yeah, right. yeah, a lot of orders from the EU, and so we discovered that um, <laughs> we were told that you only have to pay tax on the manufacturing cost, but it turns out you have to pay tax on the entire sale. So including that went... including whatever money you took in for shipping. <laughs> wow. So that was a big chunk we didn't expect. There were just lots of things we didn't expect that came up, and we, it came pretty close. We probably would have scraped by had were not. Were you guys figuring done all of this out by yourselves? Did you have any mentors? You know, uh, uh, mm. what, what, oh, you said, mm, what were you thinking of? Uh, were you thinking of Chuck? Guy, yeah, Chuck. Okay, so we had some mentors from a couple of other game companies that were really helpful early mm-hmm. on that you could just ask them, and they were so just honest with us and just they they really helped us I think steer in the right direction. One of the other things that was really helpful is I originally thought we were going to need to use a shipping company that could handle all of it that could ship to all the different countries because how was I going to figure out how to ship something to somebody who lived in the UK or wherever. And then I discovered that there are a lot of people that blog about this. So I did a lot of reading and I found that um I could find out what other kickstarters had used for local fulfillment companies. So I was able to, through them, find local fulfillment in Canada, local fulfillment in the UK, Mm. in the EU, Australia. And that allowed us to um, actually reduce the original thought of how much it was going to cost to ship. Still, it was a pretty penny, but it did allow us this new flexibility. And then we discovered that we could use social media and Facebook advertising to advertise directly to customers in the EU. So we were able to kind of keep up those those warehouses and find even better warehouses. And we can advertise all over the world to really anybody and then ship from our local warehouses in each country. At what point, I mean, was there a discussion at any point, Alyssa, that that this was going to be your job too? Or was it just sort of like all hands on deck, we got to get this done? <laughs> I don't know. That's how it started. That's how it started. I need. We need to help each other, kind of. Yeah. Yeah, we were both just like... This was crazy for both of us after the Kickstarter, and we were... I think Henry was one, wasn't he? Well, how old was he? Is that your youngest? Yeah, I think he was two and a half when we did the Kickstarter. So, I mean, I was very much busy, and we were busy with young children, too. But, yeah, I think I just started in and just kind of kept doing more and more as time went on. So when did did you officially take the title of CEO, and, and what was that conversation like? Paul, did you agree... Did you? Yeah, we had a, a couple of employees at that point, and uh, Alyssa was just doing everything a CEO does. She was networking. She was handling everything except for product development. And so I was just like, you know, you should just, just call yourself CEO. And she's like, no, no, no. And then we went to a show, <laughs> and there was this young man who I had worked with that was, um, he was doing freight shipping for mm-hmm. us. Like, like he, a toy show, a product show? Yeah, okay. I went to a toy okay. show, and so he was going to meet us at this show, and I was like, oh yeah, sure, stop by the booth at this time. So he stops by. We talk about our next shipments, what we're going to need in the coming year, how, how many shipments we're probably going to mm-hmm. do, where they're all going to go. And at the end of the conversation, he says, okay, well, because um, Paul was busy talking to somebody else, he said, okay, well, when Paul's done... Um, you know, and when he's free, why don't you just send me a message and then I'll stop back by the booth and we can kind of make this official. Mm-hmm. And I was so frustrated. I said, I, I didn't say it to him, but I thought to myself, 
I am the only person who's ever talked to you. You have never talked to Paul. Paul has never made a decision. So why are you waiting to make it official till he's available? Right. <laughs> I don't mind if you want to meet the guy, but we're not making this shipping decision official through Paul. Yeah. I'm the one who makes these decisions. And that's when I thought, okay, I'm just going to switch it. And it did help to have that on my signature sure. on emails and everything. Yep. Because- Paul, do you have a title? Um, I call myself the cheap designer. I'm the only one, though, right now. So, <laughs> so in but in those are I run a big team. In, in and do you spend most of your time? I mean, are you thinking about the next iteration? Like, what 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 do you hmm. what do you spend your time on? Yeah. So, uh, so once Turing Tumble was out, I started working on a new project, um, something to teach electronics, but without any electronics. So, like Turing Tumble is a mechanical computer. This is mechanical electronics. So it's it's also the first the first physical version of electronics ever. So, you know, electronics has different parts like resistors, capacitors, transistors, all these things, and they're all connected together with wires. Well, this has the mechanical equivalent of all those parts. So you still have capacitors, transistors, resistors, all those things, but they're, they're all like physical parts that are connected together with chain. So you learn how electronic circuits work, but you can actually feel the pull of voltage and you can see the current flow. You can learn electronics in a way that's so much more tangible and that you can relate to. I think electronics is extremely hard because it's so abstract, but this makes it something that you can see and feel and touch. And you started working on that right away. Yeah. Yep. Okay. We talked about our development time a little while ago. (laughs) Turing Tumble (laughs) development time was five years. Yeah, not full time though. No, not full time, but Spintronics development. This is an amazing. Oh, this this thing. So Spintronics is the name of it, and this thing is incredible. And he's been at it full time for four years. Mm. Yeah. It it's it is it is beautiful. It is so touchable. You just want to mess with it and. It's fun because really early on, you right away can visually see the difference between a parallel and series circuit. And it's just, it's just blatantly obvious when you look at this thing, whereas when you're learning about it in school, it's not. Yeah. You don't ever get to actually see where the electricity is going. How close are you to releasing it? Yeah, so we did a Kickstarter for it um, last June. And did that one go as well as the first? Yeah, it went well. We raised instead of four hundred thousand, we raised one point three million this wow. time. Wow! Yeah, maybe in your spare time, you two should write a book on how to do a successful <laughs> Kickstarter. You know, we—that's one thing that we try to do—is we do try if people ask us to give input on how to do a mm. Kickstarter. That is one thing that I have really prioritized. So I've met with many, many people and talked to them about Kickstarter. Do you feel and, like it's it works as well today? Because it's funny. I feel like there was a period of time where you're hearing all the time and as a reporter telling lots of stories. Mm. And then it was sort of like, okay, not every Kickstarter is going to be a story. Mm-hmm. And, right. and I didn't, you, you just don't hear about it as much. But do you think it's working as well as it did? Yeah, so there's two parts to that. So one part is Kickstarter itself is is actually doing better than it ever has before. Um, There's more people buying things on Kickstarter. There's more money being put into Kickstarter than there ever has been. On the other side of it, though, it's more difficult to get uh, press about Mm -hmm. it now. A lot of um, a lot of like uh, publishers now have policies against writing anything on a Kickstarter project, whereas back when we did it, only a few had policies. Right, it was more novel. Yeah. So uh, finding people who would write articles on Spintronics was much more difficult um, than it was with Turing Tumble. I thought I thought we were going to have a lot of a lot of takers with this because we already had a track record because it was even cooler, all that kind of stuff. But it was much harder to find people to write stories. So how did you get the message out to to people? Uh, So we did have some articles. Um, Kickstarter is a is a nice platform for people starting out because there's a lot of people perusing it, looking for things that they want to maybe buy. So every day you have a lot of people finding it through the platform itself and purchasing it. We also had a, a long list of people who'd bought Turing Tumble that we could send emails to. So that was a huge part of it as well. Mm-hmm. So this time it was different. This time it was mostly just the platform itself and our past customers. I'm just fascinated. Once you had, I mean, you have the success of Turing Tumble. You're a real company when you're approaching the, the need to raise money for the next project. Was there any part of you that thought about going like the, the venture route or, or you know, getting in investors? Mm-hmm. Why go back to Kickstarter? One super cool thing about us launching a company that way through a Kickstarter is that every person that buys your product is is investing in you. You have individual people 
mm-hmm. who are all coming and then you're giving them something back. And what a cool, really grassroots way to develop a business. Yeah. And there's always the option to do a venture route. And, and we have even had people approach us with wanting to be venture funders in what we're doing. But what we really feel strongly about is we want to make sure that we are um, growing in a sustainable way, that what the money that we take in is the money that we have to use for the next thing. Mm-hmm. And that's a very um, clear way of doing it because we say, okay, guess what? Turing Tumble raised 400000 Spintronics raised $1.3 million. We're in a new category now as we're making our first batch of Spintronics games. But we have a clear understanding of okay, this is, this is how many people have invested in us, and this is sort of a sustainable growth rate. Mm-hmm. So every time we make purchasing decisions, we're really trying to be really fiscally responsible. We're trying to, even with our staff, be responsible and, and making sure that we're not wasteful in, in just, you know, being able to really grow at the appropriate rate with what, what, the, what the market can sustain with this, these educational toys that we're putting out. Sure. I, I want to go back, uh, if we can, to the early days of Turing Tumble. After you got that initial order out and, and you had reason to think from advertising that there's going to be more interest, what then? I mean, did, did you set up a, a, a sustainable manufacturing schedule? At a certain point, you have to start manufacturing before you know you have the order. Yeah, that, was, that is always every time now. We're glad we've t- we took the early risks because I feel like the financial risks that you take ongoing in a business are difficult to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and we always did them in a very smart way. But there were times when we would, we would kind of clear out the bank account to make the next run, especially for the holiday season, because we need to manufacture a lot of games for the holiday season. And we're already, you know, we've gone from January through to um, August, where we need to make that final holiday payment. And we are, you know, not as we're not, we don't, our bank account isn't quite as lush at that point. Mm-hmm. So each run that we first made, we had to base it on, okay, let's stretch ourselves a little bit further. Okay, let's stretch ourselves a little bit further and order a few more games. Okay, let's order an extra container of games. Okay, let's do this. And do the, does it get easier to, to be comfortable with those risks? Uh, I think the risk lowers the longer that we do this because you know that there will be orders there. Sure. So that was nice. Um, but it, but in those early days where you're you know saying okay we're going to order enough games to sell them over yeah, that Christmas. That was scary, especially <laughs> because we didn't realize how much taxes would be. Oh, and taxes <laughs> when taxes hit, it's awful. Whew. The time when taxes hit <laughs> is the same time when you need to put down that money, and it yes. just kills you. One time we walked, so we have had accountants, and one time we left an accountant's office, and I, I just looked at Paul, and I was like, how many cars could we buy with the taxes we have to pay this year? Hmm. I mean, it was just, the number was just, to me, astronomical, because yeah. to us, when you're so involved in the business, and it's, it is an LLC, the money is just the money that you have to work with, and it is, taxes are take a hefty chunk, and when you're trying to buy holiday stock at the same time and make those inventory planning decisions it's hard yeah i have no problem paying taxes it's just it's just scary when they give you a huge bill sure of course (laughs) how quickly did you guys hire other people Uh, yeah man we hired linda linda was our first she helped with advertising um i was kind of the only one doing advertising at the beginning and so it was hard to focus on much else because you're always refresh, 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 refresh. How's it going today? Okay, I need to change something because today's a little slower. Oh, what's going on here? And it was hard to really focus on anything else. So we hired um, our first employee to help us with advertising. And she kind of took that off my hands. Um, yeah, so that, we, that was... 2017 is a Kickstarter, and I think yeah. she started in 2018. Okay, and you have how many employees mm-hmm. now? Now there's, besides us, there's um, six. So there's eight of us total right now. Where, and where do you manufacture? In Shanghai. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so what, what is, so, so Paul, you're spending most of your days getting this next game out. Uh, Alyssa, what's your day-to-day like? Yeah, I, I don't ever get a big stretch of time to do much of anything, which is wonderful. I like, I like being busy. I like a variety. So of our other staff. We're kind of opposite that way. Mm-hmm. I spend my entire day focused on one thing, and Alyssa spends her days focused on a lot of different things. A lot of. I do not like to even answer emails during the day. I just like hold them off until the end of the day and then finish them Do you talk to each other during the day? Oh, yeah. A little bit. Yeah. Not a whole heck of a lot. Maybe not as much as Meet in the cafeteria? 
<laughs> That's right. I know. <laughs> yeah, oh, there's also the factor of this that that you weren't really planning to be where you wanted to be flexible for the kids. I know you're the boss, but that's time consuming. Yeah. You know, what's been awesome, though, is I when Paul quit his job and and started in the um, Kickstarter uh, working on um, fulfilling Turing Tumble full time. It's been really fun because we really tried. We were both very involved in our in our family life. But I've just seen those years. Now the boys don't know anything other than mom and dad (laughs) splitting our time with them. Mm -hmm. They just this is just the norm. They don't know who's going to pick them up at at school because it'll be mom or dad. They don't know who's going to stay home with them when they're sick. Mm. And it's just it's either one. So I think that's kind of a wonderful thing about us both being in the same business now. And we help each other out. So when Paul's in a deep development time, there are times when he really does work straight through straight through a weekend, you know, just straight through. He's got his head down for even two weeks in a row sometimes where he's just working really hard. And then I'm busy getting the kids. And then there's other times where I, you know, we're getting a new a new shipment in or during the holiday season and I'm I'm dump I'm jumping in on customer support. And he's the one running and getting the kids, tending to dinner, doing all the things. So it's been really fun. I feel like our I feel like our marriage and our family life have only gotten better the longer we've been doing this. And I think it could have gone the other way. It could have. You know, I think for some people it would be difficult, but for us, it's been great. Like, mm-hmm. okay, so when when we have separate jobs, you know, you hear about something that happens at the other person's job or, uh, you know, and, and you think, oh, interesting, whatever. Um, maybe they have to work late one day and you're like, oh, I kind of get it, but I just wish they were home. Now it's like... If she's willing to stay and do what needs to be done, it's like, yeah, go for it. Thank you. Mm, <laughs> and, I'm out of here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we have always things to talk about with work-related stuff, and it's always so interesting to both of us because mm-hmm. it relates to both of us. And That's very interesting. Is there Are there any rules that you've put in place or are there any you know limits like you can't talk about the business at dinner or, or anything that you do? Just to maintain. Oh, I think kind we've of kind separation. of found like a nice balance. I, yeah. Like we sometimes you can I can just tell that he's like, I, I don't want to know about that thing you're working on right now. <laughs> and I, I, he probably knows the same thing about me where you're like, okay, I'm just kind of tired about that. I just don't want to talk about shipping anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I get so jazzed about it too. Um, but yeah, I think we found a good balance. And one fun thing for our kids is um, we've, really, we've really talked to them a lot about the business mm-hmm. as much as they're interested and just been frank with our answers about it. And I think, um, I think that's been good for them. And they may be the kids that say, Heck no, I'm not doing that because I saw mom and dad and they were doing that all the time. But guess what? They also see us doing it and loving it mm-hmm. all the time. So hopefully that inspires them to say, I'm going to find something that I enjoy as much as mom and dad enjoyed doing this toy business together. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to ask you about the decision to not um, to not sell through. I mean, you, you, you own this company. You're, is most of it direct to consumer? It is a lot direct to consumer and also into education, which is direct to consumer, but kind of its own its own beast. But you decided not to go the route of getting on the shelves at Target and Walmart and places like that. Why? Yeah, that was really these um, early mentors that that we talked to really helped us with some of that those decisions. So I really felt like if we were on in on the shelves of a big box store, that would be mean that we had arrived. And the more that we did our online sales where we're using um, Facebook advertising and social media advertising to find customers, the more we realized that, number one, you get to help that customer experience end to end. So you can make it a positive experience end to end. Number two, you can show a video of what your product is. And because Turing Tumble is not clear, the box is beautiful. It's well designed. It has everything you would need to know. But if you see a video of it operating, you have already just an instant understanding of this looks fun. It's a marble run. Wow, it's doing some really cool patterns. How does it do that? And it gets people more um, educated and excited before they make the purchase. Mm-hmm. In addition, we also learned that with, um, with shipping into a big box store, there are a lot of added costs. So a lot of stores require you to have all sorts of... Um, they require the pallets to come in in a certain way. You have to get into the, into the drop-off of that shipping dock between two and four on a certain day. Sometimes your inventory might sit in the warehouse for a while before they bring it out into the store, and you don't have control over any of that. And it ends up actually being a very costly commitment. Hmm. In addition, if somebody um, brings back a game because they bought a Turing Tumble and they decided my kid doesn't like it, 
oftentimes the manufacturer is stuck with the bill of that returned game that ends up just going in the garbage. And we have so few returns because when people purchase, they saw a video, they know what they're buying. It's not a surprise. Do But do you feel at all limited, like there's only so far you can get through this sort of organic search and people finding you? I mean, couldn't you get to another level with the help of mass retailers? Um, I, I appreciate buying from mass retailers. So I don't say this in a way that's, that means to be negative. But the, the allure of a mass retailer is we will take care of it for you. And then the other message that you hear from mass retailers is fear. If you don't sell through us, then you're not realizing your potential. You will not have these realized sales. What they don't tell you is that sometimes if you want to appear in their, in their fold-out, um, this is what we have for back-to-school sales, you pay for that placement. Mm-hmm. They don't tell you. Sometimes you even have to pay for a spot on the shelf. Sometimes you have to pay for an end cap or for special marking, and that's all expensive because you're paying for the, the printing of it. You're paying for somebody to put it on there, and it ends up that you're just at the whim of people walking by your item. Mm-hmm. And so it, it doesn't end up when you look at the, the cost for it and the type of game that we have and the type of product we have, it really is better for us to really have an informed consumer purchase that we're talking to directly, managing their experience end to end. And we end up getting the, you know, the most profit out of that. It's the least amount of headache for us. And it really, I feel like we're really giving cu- customers what they actually want. Interesting. It's not just a guess. Oh, they might like this. I'm just going to grab it. Yeah. You know, if going through retail is essentially paying for advertising, right, because it just goes on the shelves, people walk by and they see it. So it's it's really, really expensive advertising. Sixty hmm. percent of the retail price would essentially go to them. So is this what you would tell anybody who came to you with with a product that they were trying to take to market? It's a price point thing also. OK. And it's a, and it's a what is a commodity thing also. So say, for example, you're selling something that um, that maybe. Everybody needs to buy. You're going to sell, let's say, paper towels, okay? And you came out with this great new type of paper towel. The big box stores get excited about you. People are going into the box stores to buy paper towels. Mm -hmm. Probably every other time they go into the store. That's a great opportunity. Sell your paper towels at the big box stores. And I applaud you. That is a really good decision. If you have um, something that's small, like you have something that would be a trinket item, and it's, or you have something that's in the birthday price range, 20 bucks to 30 bucks. Mm. <laughs> if you're like a Nerf gun, sell it in the big box stores. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Your price point uh, for the game is what? $69.95 for Turing Tumble. And then Spintronics is a little more expensive than that. Which isn't crazy for a big, like Target has some, they're getting more and more expensive board games. So it wouldn't be too far outside of what they normally sell. Um, but it's, it's not a mainstream sort of product. And the reason why it sells for that is what? Are there just a lot of parts? Yeah, it's, it's a lot of parts, yep. It's, it's some big parts and it's a lot of parts. It's got a big puzzle book. It's, um, you know, it's, it's uh, like the thickness of the puzzle book. It's got a lot of content. It's just kind of a, it's really a premium product as far as. It's not a typical educational toy. Sure. And we really, really want. It is something that you can keep pulling out. You know, some a kid might use it when they're 12 for a couple months and play with it, and then it gets put away, and it should come back out when they're 13, and they're going to engage with it in a different way. So it's something that we really want to be. Um, that's why we made even the packaging is, is nice, and it, it is sustainable, and we want when people are done with it, give it to your local library, give it to a friend or a neighbor or a cousin. One, one kind of theme, one sort of overall theme of what we've done so far is that we've discovered... Anything we do ourselves, we generally do a lot better than if we pay somebody else to do it. Interesting. So, you know, with marketing and advertising, we do it a lot better than anybody else. And I mean, that's what retail would be, is paying them to do advertising for us. And we can do it a lot more efficiently than they can. Um, so are you already thinking, Paul, to the next product, to what comes after Spintronics? And will you repeat this you know, Kickstarter and, and, re- and repeat thing? Or, you know, what, what's, what's the five-year plan? Yeah, so we have a lot of projects um, that are in the pipeline. Um, I think we're going to hire some engineers to help now instead of just 
four years is too long. We don't we don't want another product <laughs> Just to, to make it go faster. Yeah. yeah. As as the CEO, I would like to say that Paul is a genius to be on the team, but he's also our rate limiting factor. <laughs> yeah, I'm the slowest thing. So having some people that could help speed up or yeah. you know work on things in parallel that would help out a lot. Okay. So. Do you imagine this being a family business that you continue to run? Do you want to sell it to a a big game manufacturer? We don't want to sell it. One thing that Paul and I keep coming back to is I we really I I like to think that we have a, a secret sauce, that we really have something special here in what we're doing and working together in how we envision this. And what I see is I really want I don't want to stop until this has become a movement. Something where people are engaging in hot, you know, in, in, in these really cool toys that teach how things work in a really deep way and where parents and, and anybody has the opportunity to buy something that's really engaging and not just bite-sized. And I think it's been so fun. I, coming from an education background, working with the teachers who are using Turing Tumble in the classrooms, we've got teachers even pre-ordering Spintronics trying to get grant funding so they can be on the first line of mm. getting Spintronics. Wow. And I just, I just feel really excited about the potential for the future. And I think we're having a lot of fun together. And yeah. I don't think, I think selling it, that would be so disappointing. It's, <laughs> it's just so fun to do this. It is a movement. And I would be so happy if other companies started doing what we're doing. Yeah. Even though it would probably hurt our bottom line, like there would be so much higher quality educational toys out hmm. there. There would be it would be great. I would love it because there's so much garbage out there right now. So <laughs> I have to ask: Do your kids play with uh, screens? Are they on? Do oh they yeah. do video games? Oh yep. for sure. Yep. I okay, do. I feel love. much better knowing that. Thank <laughs> oh, you. and yeah. I mean, video games. There's a place games. for it for sure. Yeah. Yeah. The thing too with video games is, I mean, kids do learn a lot from video games, mm-hmm. and our kids they are so funny. Our eight-year-old, he was providing tech support during the pandemic, and they were distance learning. He would unmute himself and make recommendations on how to do things. Oh, yeah. But they love, they love screens. They, do, they love video games, and it, you learn a lot from them. What would your message be to other, whether it's businesses or educators or parents, as far as how we think about the machines that we use today? I think we, we, we're trying to make things that are otherwise difficult to absorb, difficult to understand, difficult to relate to, into something that can be understood, that can be absorbed with your brain. I mean, your brains have evolved to be able to understand things that are physically there and in front of you. They, you know, that's, that's what they thrive on. So when you give a book full of pictures of things and descriptions of things with a lot of work you can absorb that but it's so much easier and so much more interesting if you can have a physical representation of it that you can interact with and play with sure. and i think that's a good function for educational toys is to be that intermediate that that sort of converts something that's abstract into something that's tangible um, right so i think for us that's where we found our, our niche I would say for other companies, what we would like to see is just, um, you know, we would like to see a little bit longer product cycle, you know, for developing new toys. We'd like to see them not think about what, what we need to make, what the toy should be, but to think about where are the holes in our education? Where could we actually use some more help teaching difficult concepts? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, that kind of thing would, that, that's sort of what drives us. And it would be great to see more of that out there. I think we're, we're finding a lot of success in that area, and I think there's room for more. I think, too, uh, just in a kind of backing away from the, like, uh, somebody interacting with our product, but looking at it in a bigger picture way, even adults and children, I hope that when they are playing with our product, they're developing confidence in the rest of their lives as well. Mm. The confidence mm. to just figure something out. It doesn't even need to be something physical, but trying to dig in and know that our brains are malleable and they are open to new ideas. And as a 40-year-old, you can, um, you can take on a new skill and you can dig into something new and you can have curiosity and you can, you can learn to do something that you never thought you'd be able to do before. And I think, I hope that our, our toys set kids up and even adults that are playing it or high schoolers that are playing it, I hope that it gives them this confidence 
to try things in the rest of their lives as well. That's a great takeaway for kids, for parents, and for entrepreneurs. Yeah, <laughs> it really is. It's an amazing story. It's uh, it's so impressive what you've accomplished and 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 a good reminder that it isn't always about, you know, being venture backed or or, you know, going these really splashy routes that you can just get it done by digging in and working hard. <laughs> Congratulations. And it'll be fun to see what's next. Can't wait to see what happens when you have that whole team, Paul. <laughs> you yeah. can, can meet your wife's deadlines then right? <laughs> yeah I know finally uh, this was so fun thank thanks you thanks for being here well it's been a long time since I've heard such a successful Kickstarter story it, if you have a product or a new business in mind you might be feeling very inspired by Alyssa and Paul's story Is it realistic? Is it a good way to go? Well, let's find out. Let's go back to the classroom with the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business, where Gino Giovanelli is a marketing professor. Gino, so good to have you back on the show. Thanks, Allison. It's great to be back. And I know that you related to Alyssa and Paul's story on a personal level, a lot of parallels with your own life. Yeah, it was it was uh, it brought me back down memory lane here a little bit. Uh, my wife and I started a business together back in 2007, and just just hearing the way that they they talk about managing being parents and being husband and wife and being business partners, and um, you know, there's there's no separation between work and home. And I don't know, I just it, it brought me back. Honestly, it's uh, it was a fun time for sure. Uh, and I, I'm a little jealous actually, just hearing about their their success. Right. Well, I'm jealous hearing about how they've done this so grassroots and and getting it off the ground all by themselves. I mean, this is something that you couldn't have done a a decade or so ago. It really, that is is truly a a product of the internet and all of the, you know, direct to consumer um, services that are now at our disposal. Do you think this is luck or is this a viable path for, for startups? Well, I think I think it starts with the product. Uh, I think if you have a product like they did or they, that they do that is truly unique uh, and that there is demand for, I, I think it can work. Um, you know, a lot of people talk about unique products, but there might not be demand for them. Or a lot of people have products that, that are in demand, but there's nothing about their version of it that makes it special. I think what really is the foundation of this of this success story is a is a truly unique product that was in demand. Think mm-hmm. about everybody who uses a computer, and this is the only toy that teaches people how, you know, how computers work. So I think it starts there. Uh, and because of that, I think uh, then they were able to layer in some other foundational elements. Like uh, I made in my notes this entrepreneurial spirit that these two have. I mean, they had this balance of having the guts to go for it. Uh, but there's also some humility and and there's all they're also grounded financially. They didn't uh, they didn't go crazy with this funding and and start mixing and matching funds from different uh, kickstarters or anything like that. They kind of stuck to their knitting and said, "This is what we're going to do. We're going to grow at our pace. We're not going to rely on others to that are going to maybe be helpful in some ways, but maybe they had the wisdom to be uh, aware that that could be hurtful from a you know controlling their own destiny perspective. And and I I love I just love the spirit in which they're running this business. Yeah. And then I and then I think the third leg of this stool is that they had good coaching. Mm-hmm. Um, they mentioned Chuck and you know they had they had these him and some maybe some other people that that helped them just guide them through these tough decisions where it would have been really maybe easier to look for 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 venture funding and yeah. to go to the big retailers because like, I guess you feel like that sounds like the right thing to do. And then you go, no, let's try it a, a completely different way. Um, that doesn't get a lot of press, it seems, these days. And and it, it just it just worked for them. And now they're in control of their own destiny and they're doing it their way. And I just... Yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm I'm jazzed for it. It's a good reminder these days when it seems like everybody goes to the venture route the minute they have a great idea that there are other ways to do it. And this actually starts to Kickstarter starts to seem like a traditional or a more conservative route. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> well, you know, you know, you see it in other industries, too, like the music industry. You know, my son's a musician. You know, this notion of having to go to a record company and a, and a record label to, to get distribution. He's like. Uh, he's emailing people in LA, these, you know, these artists in LA sending loops back and forth. I'm like, did all this stuff himself. And, 
Um, and again, he has, he's also been able to kind of control his own destiny and, um, yeah, it just, it releases the shackles. And that's what, that's what probably the most exciting and invigorating thing about this. Right. That you can, it, it makes it accessible to, to many. And I think for small yeah. businesses, that's, that's great news and kind of levels yeah. the playing field. Yeah, for sure. Well, for sure. thanks for the inspiration, Gino. It's always great to talk to you. Thanks, Allison. Great to be back on the show. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And thank you to our presenting sponsor, the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business. If you like what you heard, take a minute to rate and review us. It really helps the show. If you want to know more, go to tcbmag.com slash by all means. And thanks again for listening to By All Means. teamwork to make by all means and we've got some all-stars thanks to our audio engineer tom for digital support is ricky hannigan and dan nepo thanks to the university of st thomas opus college of business and schultz school of entrepreneurship especially associate dean laura dunham for all their support our theme music is by song finch thank you for listening to by all means Bye.